0: As a tech business, we only have two assets, really. One is the technology that we've built, and the other is the team. And if you look at those, then even the technology is built by people. So arguably, everything boils down to people in the end.
1: Welcome to the podcast, B2B SaaS CEOs, with me, Joseph Allison as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams close more deals and book more meetings through video messaging. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO, and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey.
0: Hi, I'm Lena. I'm the founder and CEO of Bright Payments, a fintech based in Stockholm, processing instant payments all across Europe. And you are listening to B2B SaaS CEOs.
1: Hi and welcome, Lena. Hello. How are you?
0: I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you?
1: Amazing to hear. I'm doing well too. And let's jump straight into it. First thing first, what does your company Bright Payments do? Please do the elevator pitch.
0: The elevator pitch. So at Bright, we provide instant payments, which means that we allow consumers to pay instantly using just their bank account across all of Europe and also receive money instantly to their bank account, um, basically in, at this point, 24 different markets in Europe. So that is our core focus. We don't do any other payments. It's all about instant, easy payments with your bank account.
1: Straight to the point. And this leads me into a follow-on question in this topic about your company, because I love to listen to stories. Can you please tell me the story of How the idea of Bright was born.
0: So I've been in payments for the past 13 years. So ever since I came out of business school um, with a number of different fintechs that I've worked in here in Sweden, but also in Germany, which is actually the country that I was born in. And I have been following this space and more specifically open banking, which is the underlying technology that we use um, to build our products on. Um, for the past decade or so. So I've seen different companies um, in this space with different approaches on how they've built their product and also what the consumer value proposition is. Um, ranging from companies that focus more on what we would call just payment initiation. So basically just sort of um, getting a payment into your account that is then executed later, not instantly, Um, very popular with consumers in some markets and other business models, um, basically that focus more on the instant processing, but maybe haven't focused focused as much on the consumer experience um, in the past and looking at the different players in the markets I felt that sort of why is nobody combining the best of both worlds, the instant processing. So that's nice for consumers because it's super convenient. You get your money fast if it's a payout flow. Um, So if you're not paying, but you're rather receiving money. Um, And for merchants, it's good because it's taken away a lot of the risk connected to payment processing because the money arrives instantly, um, essentially. So I thought, why is nobody sort of combining the instantness and the benefits of that? Um, with making the process really smooth and nice from a sort of UX, UI point of view um, and build like a new generation of payment companies. And that's how I started Bright in 2019, uh, grabbing along a lot of the people that I thought were best that I had worked with in, in FinTech for the past decade or so. And we got started. And now we are almost 100 people, mostly here in Sweden, quite a lot of great people down in Spain, which is our second largest office now in Germany. And sort of that's how we've been growing and hopefully continue to grow
1: very impressive journey since you say you said 2019 and now almost 100 people and you are what can you say um, three and a half years in into the story yeah that's fast
0: it's a fast moving case we have to keep up
1: <laughs> hats off for that and uh, now, since the listeners know a bit more about Bright and uh, the story and your company, I want to move in to one of my two big segments in this podcast. This podcast is mostly about business development and leadership. So it's time for the first segment, Lena. Leadership. And the first question here, it's a straight shooting one. Are you a good leader?
0: Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, I think I have a bit of a differentiated answer. So I'm a founder in this business. But prior to that, I was a CEO, um, which I think is maybe uh, different to a lot of really great founders that I know that sort of started their entrepreneurial journey much faster. Um, so I like to think that I was probably a better leader when I was just a CEO, not a, not a founder. And the reason for that is basically um, because I was obviously entering a business that was already built so I could focus more on the structure um, and the people. Whereas as a founder, you're basically laying the tracks um, as you're writing them, which means that you're sort of the time that you have is a lot more limited. And I find that that can be quite challenging when you're really trying to make people feel like they're being seen and you value their output. So it sort of challenges your leadership a bit more and you're also more emotional. Quite simply, because it's your own company, there's so much at stake. Um, so ultimately, the people reporting to me will have to answer if I'm a good leader or not. Um, but uh, I think I have probably changed.
1: If we move into superpowers then, because I, I'm i having this podcast because I want to learn. What would you say are your top one to three superpowers as a leader?
0: I'm, I'm quite... Energetic as a person. Um, So I do things all the time. I'm one of those people who can never really sit still. And that means that I can typically juggle a lot of different topics um, at the same time um, and be in on a lot of different topics at the same time. So I think on the positive side, I think you're going to find very few people that will say, uh, okay, she has absolutely no clue how this works <laughs> because I'm into everything. And um, that can be in many, in many contexts that has proven um, to be sort of a real, real asset to me. Um, so that I would say is the number one thing, um, basically sort of high energy, high capacity um, in that sense. Um, the second thing is I think I've learned to be quite resilient. Um, I, I've, I think I've always been that as a person, um, but in business, I don't freak out super easily. Um, which I think from a leadership point of view is good. Like if you you have a crisis, if there is a technical incident or something's happened and when you're in a startup, things happen every day, (laughs) basically on on a different scale of drama. um, I think I usually stay quite calm, um, which I think is helpful if you're working with somebody that doesn't completely lose it on you and just creates more stress when it's already stressful. So I think that would probably be the second one that I'd like to highlight. A third one I don't know. Superpowers is a strong word. Maybe I'll stick to those two.
1: <laughs> have you always been energetic and resilient? Or is that something you really have had to work on like a muscle?
0: No, I think it's very much in my nature in all fairness. I think it's something that people said about me, even in my, my first job. Um, basically, I got that feedback all throughout my career. So it's something that comes very natural to me. So I haven't had to to, do, uh, to work for it, really. Um at least the energy part, the resilience part, maybe I think that becomes easier as you, you know, you're older, you're more senior, you advance through different leadership positions, and then you learn to just be like, okay, this is not, you know, we've seen worse things. We're also going to sort this out, sort of. So that is something I think that grows maybe um, as, as you sort of go through your career and you're a CEO or a leader for a longer period of time.
1: We're moving on. I want to hear if you can share an odd thing that you. Or a leader above you in the past have done that seemed odd, but actually had a great amount of impact. Now, when you're looking back,
0: ah, that's an interesting question. If I look at sort of what I do oddly today, is like I have really, really good experience with recruiting people that maybe have a bit of an odd profile in. And odd constellations, maybe, so not, you know, we we sometimes like we recruit people that maybe just want to work part time, but they're extremely senior, so they bring a lot of experience in, which might seem quite strange to hire somebody in that way, Um, or we hire people on a project base um, that then come in and help out with one specific topic, but they're not actually consultants. Um, or we get people involved in the business that actually have their own business somewhere else, but they bring a lot of expertise in one particular area. Um, those are maybe sort of some some funky recruitment strategies that we've had that have really rendered a lot of results where people were like, okay, but this is just strange. Why, why are we even doing this? And then it has worked out really nicely. So that's maybe a general odd thing that I can I can recommend that has worked for for me in the past, both here in this business, but also in previous businesses.
1: We take that, we stick with that. And... Uh... <laughs> Move on to bad things, the worst things, because everything isn't happy, happy Being a leader, you know that. I know that many people know that. So I want to know, according to you, Lena, what is the worst things about being a leader, and how do you tackle them?
0: Mm. I think the worst thing for me personally um, is guilt, because I feel that sort of in the sense that I never really have enough time for all the people that are working with me. Um, and I'm just very conscious of, you know, early on my career, I would sort of really look forward to the one-on-one that I had with my manager, because it was this sort of one half an hour a week um, that I could really focus on getting, you know, my topics through, and discuss, and get feedback, and today, of course, when sort of, I actually have quite a lot of direct reports, because the business is still quite young, and we're still building out a structure, and, you know, I'm just conscious of the fact that people reporting to me, they may look at their time with me in the exact same way. So you really want to be focused, you want to be sharp, you really want to make everybody feel that sort of this time matters to you as well, while you're also having 16,000 different other topics flying around. And um, so you can't always be maybe as switched on and attentive, or you have to move meetings around, or you have to cut them short, or you're late. And that to me, maybe on a sort of personal note, I think is perhaps the most difficult one, not really having enough time for everybody and always being able to give them the attention they deserve.
1: And how do you tackle the guilt and this in the best possible way as you can today?
0: I usually try to be quite transparent and explain uh, for people um, why I have to cut something short or what is currently going on so that they maybe see that, you know, it's, it's not about them. It's about just something else is happening in the business right now that I need to focus on. Um, so that is one way about it. And then the other is obviously just, you know, spending more time. <laughs> really making time and sometimes carving out time for something that is not really the most prioritized p- topic at, at this very moment, um, but where you feel like, okay, you really want to give somebody a signal that sort of, okay, we will make time. We will just sit down again and we will crunch this, um, which ultimately then is perhaps more of investment into that particular and role than necessarily into that key priority. Um, but yeah, that's a constant struggle for me at least.
1: Uh, this last part uh, was really uh, powerful. I've heard, never heard uh, ever, strangely enough, the word guilt around this. So yeah, I, I, I love the framing here, Lena. And if you have to summarize leadership from your point of view with one word, what would that be?
0: I think that would be ambiguity. And I think that is relevant in two ways. <laughs> First of all, I think leadership is a lot about basically being able to see you know, the ambiguity or ambiguity in um, different sort of constellations, topics, um, perspectives, and appreciating that different people have different views on things. And at the same time, I think it's also a lot about sorting out um, ambiguity for the teams, setting a direction and saying, okay, this is the path that we're going to take. We're not going to look at this. We're not going to look at that, but we're going to focus on this. Um, So for me, at least, I feel like a lot of leadership boils down to Um, Handling and sorting out ambiguity.
1: Thank you. And I'm happy with this segment. And we move on to a bit lighter topic because it's time for a fun fact. (laughs) What is a fun fact about yourself that most people don't know about?
0: That most people don't know. Um, I've said this once before, but I still don't think that people really think about it. But I actually, you know, I'm a tech CEO and I've been in FinTech my entire career. Um, so I've done nothing else. So people typically think that I'm a very technical profile or a very commercial profile, and I do have a degree in business um, as well. But before that, I also um, studied classical literature. <laughs> so I have a full university degree <laughs> in classic literature, um, which maybe isn't super intuitive when you meet me, but it's true.
1: I didn't see that coming. So yes, we
0: count see? that as a.
1: Yeah, now now we're just shifting back to a bit more serious topics because it's time for us to talk mistakes, mm. biggest mistakes. What's the biggest mistake you have ever made in business that you can share about and can think of right now?
0: I mean, there was obviously um, quite many. Um, I, I tend to, as a person, I try to not sort of think about so much about mistakes that I've made, other than reflecting them in a the moment and move on. But one of the things I think that I did that sort of really Um, bothered me for quite some time is when I started this company, Bright. Um, I was, you know, we're obviously being contacted by different investors and you share information um, about your business and what you're building because you're passionate about what you're trying to do. And obviously, to some extent, you're also, um, of course, flattered quite simply that people take an interest. And um, I think that, that, you know, there was one particular incident, for example, where um, we were speaking to investors to really big fund um, and they were asking us pretty specific questions and I think I shared a little bit too much in good faith. And then basically I very shortly thereafter they announced a big investment into a competitor, focusing exactly on the area that we're currently in. And I to this day <laughs> ask myself if that has sort of made an impact. You know, maybe I'm overestimating the impact sort of that our insight would have given them. Um, but I think they sort of uh, got proof of concept in, in, a, in an area from us that, you know, it was maybe unnecessary. So even if it didn't play a role, it really felt like a mistake um, to me at the time. So that would be one mistake that is perhaps more recent.
1: But you learn constantly. And now it's time for a topic of your choice. We have arrived to the part where I just want to sit back and listen a few minutes to something that you are truly nerdy passionate about so now it's time for Liana's topic of choice
0: yes so somewhat related to your focus on leadership one thing that I'm quite nerdy about is culture um, because I think that sort of there is a lot of companies that um, operate in the extremes of a spectrum that, go, that basically ranges from being extremely high performance driven and very harsh And maybe to some extent very male in tech quite often, obviously not a secret, sort of tech is a very male industry on the one hand side, and then very just warm and fuzzy and family-like on the other hand side, basically. And um, I have seen both sides of the spectrum in the different companies that I've been in. And one of the things that sort of, I really sort of had when, for example, when I hired our people director, she asked me sort of, what is important for you? Like, what kind of culture do you want to build in, in this company? And um, I try to explain that similar to the founding story where we try to sort of do the best of both worlds from a product point of view, um, from a culture point of view, one of the things that I really wanted to do is build a company that is both sort of focused on performance, getting really talented people in, setting the bar quite high, um, which also means sometimes parting ways with people that are not really performing to the extent that you should. Um, But at the same time, make that a sort of wholesome place to work where you feel good when you come to work you feel that you're being treated fairly you feel that you're being seen um it's also a good place to work for for females for women in tech a wholesome workplace where you know people are sort of appreciate no matter their background or sort of view on things and um, i think so far we've we've managed but that is something that i'm um quite passionate about sort of finding the right balance between sort of, you know, performance and obviously the pressure that comes with it, but still sort of, you know, having people be really happy to work here and feel good and feel that we're a good company overall, a wholesome place. Um, so that's something that um, I'm quite passionate about. I spend a lot of time thinking about trying to find the right balance because it's easy to go off, you know, into the one or the other direction.
1: And if we're going to give out Liana's quick playbook regarding getting started with culture, what would you say are the one or two most basic things any leader that listened to this should think of?
0: It's in my point of view, it's all about hiring the right people as a foundation. Um, So it really sort of boils down to that. I think the early leaders that you bring into the company share your view and they as people are basically, they fit that mold as in they're both high performers, but they also care about others. Um, and I think, I, you know, I usually tell our team if we have an all hands or sort of the managers in the company that sort of as a, as a tech business, we only have two assets really um, in the company. One is the technology that we've built and the other is the team. I mean, we're obviously not an industrial manufacturer. We don't have a warehouse with things that are stored. I mean, that's all we have as a tech company. And if you look at those... Then even the technology is built by people. So arguably, everything boils down to people in the end. And getting sort of the right key hires in the beginning, I think that really sets the foundation. So I think that's one thing. And the other is, is of course, being, you know, as a leader, uh, also doing what you say, um, sort of not just sort of preaching things like, oh, we should be this or should be that, but just embodying that yourself. I know, it's, you know, it sounds cliche. Mm-hmm. But I really think it makes a big difference. Um, so, those are maybe the two things, if you look at culture, that I would recommend. Basically, your own behavior and what you want to stand for, and if you actually sort of do what you say you, you want others to do. And the second thing is making sure that the people you hire early on actually are a good reflection and are on board with that.
1: We move on to external questions like you obviously noticed with the topic of your choice i I, in my podcast i just don't want to shoot questions to you i want you to talk about something you want to talk about and i want the community also to get their voice heard and today we have a question from the listener matt barrystrom and this is his question bright is already in 24 european markets What's your secret when expanding a SaaS company to a new market?
0: That's a really good question, Matt, I must say. Um, I think what we have done is that we have focused very much on sort of speaking to the customers that we already have and looking at where they want to expand to because we operate typically with quite sort of enterprise customers that are quite international themselves. And um, that has helped us making sure that we get traction in each and every market early on. Um, So that we have usage of our product in that local market um, quite quickly, um, which then obviously helps getting more traction into that product. So from a commercial point of view, um, that has been, I think, sort of our go-to market Um, rather than just building a product, making it available and then hoping that someone's going to use it, which I think in some SaaS business models is, of course, the way to go. But since we're a B2B2C model, um, that has served us really well. The other is... um, Perhaps on in our end, what's been our secret is that we're just, we have a really new tech stack. Um, so that makes it rather easy to build on the product and to expand internationally. And we have a pretty diversified team from more than, I think at this point, 25 different countries um, that already has some sort of typically some international experience that has helped build product um, for those markets. So those are maybe the two things I would say, sort of focusing on the customers, making sure getting early traction has really worked for us. And secondly, um, a tech stack that allows you to Um, sort of build multiple markets also at the same time.
1: Great input. And Matt, thank you for your question. It was a good one. Uh, We moving on to the segment of business development, because Matt's question, we were already tapping into this. So talking about KPIs, which top KPIs on a company level are the most important for you? And if you don't tell me why you have chosen them, I will ask you why you have chosen them. (laughs)
0: So I'll build that in straight away into the answer then. Um, I would say so, we're a payment company, obviously. Um, so, the number one KPI that I follow is essentially transaction volume. So, how many transactions are we processing each and every day, each and every month, and how are we growing transaction volume with both existing customers but also new customers? That's the number one KPI from a business point of view that I look at. Um, the second KPI, Related to that is uptime. <laughs> we operate in a high uptime type of industry. Um, you as a consumer need to know that you can always use Bright whenever you want to, and our customers need to know that as well. Um, so that's another one. Um, so I follow that quite closely. and. You know perhaps honing in a little bit on our business model more specifically we use open banking, which means that we work on um, the back of APIs that the banks provide. Now not all banks in Europe are extremely tax heavy so you know open banking APIs can fail uh, more often than I'd like to, which has an impact on our product. so that's another reason perhaps why I'm sort of focusing on that one. And the third actually I would say is um, employee churn in connection to what we just talked about, um, culture. So we follow sort of um, how well we're doing in terms of retaining our top talent. Um, Because in a company that's moving fast, when things are developing quickly, roles also change quickly. And I think it's a really good measure of not just how happy people are um, in the company, but also sort of what a good job we're doing or not good job we're doing in uh, making sure that we keep them on board and we keep them motivated in their role and sort of provide a good basis for everybody to grow. Um, so those would be the, the three. So two of them perhaps more obvious and the last one maybe um, not what I think you would say is top of mind, but for me it is certainly.
1: Yeah, I think you covered it all. The, the product, business angle and the people. No, I don't have any more phone
0: questions here. <laughs> uh,
1: this leads me in then to go-to-market strategies, some best practices here. Can you share, Lena, some of your best practices around go-to-market for a startup?
0: Hmm. So I think one of the things that characterizes startups is that sort of your, first of all, your funds are limited when you're planning a launch or a sort of going into market, which means that you can't just do a huge campaign and put a lot, a lot of money into that. And the other is that you probably have limited experience. Um, so you don't have another 10 markets that you've previously launched. If you're looking at geographic expansion, um, of course, or if you're just taking product to market, more generally speaking, then you definitely don't have experience when you do it for the first time. So I think in the absence of both a lot of funds and a lot of experience, um, I think what has worked really well for me is looking sort of at learnings from other businesses and understanding what has worked for them, and also understanding how the market has changed since they did their go-to-market, because I think that's really often ignored. Um, Because I think there's a lot of companies like, okay, but look, you know, this big tech company, they did this and it worked super well. And then I often think, well, but that was 10 years ago, right? So it doesn't really apply today, does it? Um, If I look at payments, for example, um, the way that payment companies went to market 10 years ago um, was in the middle of the boom of e-commerce when payment volumes were shifting from offline to online because people started online shopping on a really large scale. And that, for example, meant that a lot of the online jobs that you would contract and payments would grow really strongly um, just on the back of that. Today, the market is a lot more consolidated. Um, And payment companies, so the customers you acquire, you you can't expect them to be five times the size in two years. And that will impact the way that you go to market in the sense of what kind of customers you should be targeting, how you should be acquiring those customers, how efficient you need to be in managing them, um, their lifetime value for, for you um, as a business and I think so I would that that perhaps is, is one of the things that I have spent most time thinking about sort of how the market differs compared to uh, a decade ago, for example, and then looking at what have other payment companies done to be successful. and we have built our go- to market strategy on the back of that on the back of those learnings and I think so far and yeah I'd like to think it has served us pretty well so.
1: This was really powerful, and I'm I'm happy that I'm cutting my own podcast myself because I will listen. I will just go back and listen. Yeah, yeah, really powerful. And uh, then diving in, it's a part of the go to market strategy. And this is my VAM oriented question since I'm the CEO and founder of VAM, and we are a video messaging tool for sales. So I'm collecting data, boys Lena, on how smart people like you like to get. Approach in a code outreach. So, what would you say?
0: Ooh, lead generation, that's right up my alley.
1: <laughs> what would you say is the best way to do a code outreach to you to get your attention and get you into a meeting?
0: Mm. Um, actually, for me, it's LinkedIn, um, it's not email and definitely not a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two things that I can say. I think um, if we approach it backwards, I think phone calls are the worst because I think as most people in in any business, I'm I'm constantly in meetings. Um, So getting a cold phone call is is usually not really what what, um, is gonna sort of sit most positively with me. And for emails, everybody gets tons of emails. It's sort of easy to drown. And as you're sorting through your emails at the end of the day, it's, it's not that you really wanna sit and read a sales email for a really long time. However, LinkedIn, um, gives me both the message the person has said in a limited format, because there is a limit on how much they can send you. And it gives me sort of their profile and company all at the same time. So it makes it much easier for me to get a sense of if it's relevant or not. So I really appreciate LinkedIn messages over any other form of outreach. If you can get a personal intro, of course, I mean, that, that's always different. But assuming that um, you're trying to pitch somebody, uh, I think that would be my, on, as a receiver at least, that would be my preferred way.
1: LinkedIn. You can check who the person is the company up Would you say, do, do you want it to be super direct or do you want it to be more long and polite on that angle?
0: I prefer direct. Uh, me direct. personally, I'm, uh, yeah, definitely sort of. And I don't sort of, I would say that maybe goes for most people, but if it's a really veiled message, it's just going to leave me sort of thinking, like, okay, but what do you want? <laughs> do you want my input on something or would you like to sell me something? Because I'm personally, I work in a B2B business. I think it's perfectly fair if you want to sell me something. Um, so there's this perfectly legit. Um, I just want to understand if, if sort of it makes sense for us or not and be able to give that feedback. So there's nothing to be ashamed of. So I'd rather people say that um, up front than trying to maybe take a softer approach because they don't want to appear as if they're trying to sell something. So
1: if I send you a LinkedIn DM, you shake me up and say, oh, Joseph Bam et cetera, XY would a quick personalized video help or hurt once I got your attention? and I, I know you, you like text and get, get to the point, but before saying yes to a meeting, would a personalized video help or hurt to make you say yes?
0: It would help if it includes sort of, for example, a quick demo of the product. That would help, um, basically. Just a sort of, you know, just a recording of the email that you would have otherwise sent probably wouldn't sort of uh, get me super interested. But if it includes like details on sort of how your product or service could work for us. in so, Because that's going to be the information that I would be after. Yeah. Um, so that would help I think.
1: Then we leave business development for this time at least and entering the roundup. And we only have three questions left now, Lena. And first thing here, one of my favorites in all my interviews. If you would give yourself when you were a younger CEO one to top three things to think of that you now know that you didn't know, what would you tell yourself?
0: Hmm. I think the first one would be um, basically stay authentic and believe in sort of the, the choices you make and stand behind them. Um, I think when you're a newly appointed CEO, you really wanna make sure that you're doing a good job and you're doing things by the book and especially when you're young. I was 34, I think, so I wasn't super young, um, but I also wasn't 50. Um, So when I became a CEO, I think I was focused on ensuring that I was really doing it professionally so people wouldn't feel like, oh yeah, they appointed somebody really young to this. And that sometimes led to that I maybe wasn't as firm in my decisions as I should have been, which I think I'm now just sort of, I think, much more focused on doing things the way that I believe they should be done. And then I course correct if I must, of course, obviously. But that's the first one. Um, the second one is that I wish I'd known is actually, yes, focus more on people, I think. And especially the people working for you rather than the people that you are working for. Um, I think sort of uh, as a young CEO, you tend to be quite focused with your, you know, with the people that ultimately judge the outcome of the work you produce. So for example, your board. And I wish that sort of I had earlier on spent more time on the people working below me, so to say. Um, because ultimately, that is where the output comes from. <laughs> so that's that's perhaps the um, the second thing. And a third thing I wish that sort of I had um, I had done is just take that step sooner. Because I could have um, in my career, I could have made that um, that move sooner, but I didn't because I felt that I needed more expertise in sort of certain areas. And ultimately, I think that nothing prepared me better um, for running a business than actually doing it. So I think I should have just, you know, I wish somebody had said, no, but take that job that they're offering you. Do that instead. Don't don't stick around in, in this particular role for too long. So those would be maybe the three things top of mind.
1: Thanks for sharing. And second last question. This is just basically me fishing for other cool guests. Which top two B2B SaaS CEOs do you think are cool and interesting and would like to listen to in this podcast if I would interview them?
0: Yeah, I only have one actually because I'm going to be very honest. Um, I don't spend a huge amount of time um, listening to work-related podcasts anymore. I used to do that, um, but now I do that less. But there's one person um, that I think has done an amazing journey, and that is Alexander Graf at Spryker, um, which is a uh, yeah a competitor to SAP that Alexander founded down in Germany, and it's an Im- incredibly impressive company. Alexander is also a complete podcast pro himself. He runs one of the absolute largest podcasts in Germany um, on e-commerce. And I think he's a super fun guest. And we sometimes do podcasts together, but he doesn't usually talk so much about his own business. You know, He's sort of similar to you. He's really interested in other people and hearing their stories and their businesses and sort of their approach to certain industries. He doesn't spend time talking about Spriker, and I wish he did because it's a massive success story. And I think it's not particularly known, especially in the Nordics. So I think he could be somebody that would be really fun to listen to to provide a different angle. And I would really like to hear a podcast focused on his journey and how he sees himself as a leader because he yeah, he's always focusing on others, never on himself.
1: Then I will reach out to him and say hi from you. And uh, we Thanks take too. it from there. And the last one, where will Bright be in five years?
0: Well, I'm really hoping that Bright will be a standard staple in checkouts all across Europe um, where people are actively demanding to be paying with Bright, um, whether that's in Sweden or in the Netherlands or in Finland or in Spain, you name it. Um, I'm really, really hoping for that. We will become a standard household name for our category of payments all across Europe and hopefully beyond.
1: And I wish you the best of luck with that. And now I'm shifting the focus quickly to you who has been listening two things. Number one, tell a friend or a colleague, if you like what you heard, to listen to Lena in B2B SaaS And number two, press the subscription button. And Lena, a huge thank you for putting aside around 30 minutes together with me to help the community and me to keep on learning.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much.